If you're just joining us today, we have been in a two-part series, uh, casting vision, if you will, about where the Lord wants to, where we believe the Lord wants to direct us as a church, and we've been bringing it back to this foundational principle of union with Christ, that Christ is in us, and we are in Christ, and that changes everything. And so last week, we spoke uh, about the, the reality of that, us being in Christ and how all of the benefits of salvation are, are for us in Christ, how Christ is in us and how he drills those truths deeply into our hearts by his comforting presence. We've just been looking at some of those things. What I wanna do today, and this is uh, gonna be the last one before we go back into Ephesians, is look at the implications of a life lived in union with Christ, namely that it changes everything. Um, and... I pulled out a whiteboard today because some things are better drawn than said. So, if you will, turn to Galatians chapter four. Our verse is gonna be verse 19. It's actually gonna be the last half of verse 19. But, uh, if you don't mind, can we just start reading like in verse four? <laughs> just to get us caught up in the flow of what's going on, the feeling of what's going on. Paul is writing to the church, the Galatian church, <clears throat> a church which is largely turning away from the gospel, starting in verse four, and we'll make our way to verse 19. He says to the church, when the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. But in the past, when you didn't know God, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's. But now, since you know God, or rather have become known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and bankrupt elemental forces? Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? You observe special days, months, seasons, and years. I'm fearful for you that perhaps my labor for you has been wasted. I beg you, brothers, become like me, for I also became like you. You've not wronged me. You know that I previously preached the gospel to you because of a physical illness. You didn't despise or reject me, though my physical condition was a trial for you. <laughs> On the contrary, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. What happened? to the sense of being blessed that you had. For I testify to you that if possible, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? They are enthusiastic about you, but not for any good. Indeed, they want to isolate you so you will be enthusiastic about them. Now, it's always good to be enthusiastic about good and not just when I am with you. Here's our verse. My children, I am again suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. This is God's word. Heavenly Father, come before you today with no righteousness of our own, falling at the feet of the Lord of righteousness to receive from you all that we need for our own sustenance. I stand before you, Lord, as a, someone who has failed miserably just within weeks past, helpless and broken apart from you, inept to be able to speak about such glorious things. My only hope is that, Holy Spirit, you will honor your word as it is simply explained you would drive it deeply into our hearts to reveal the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of this one you keep speaking about, Jesus Christ. 
And our prayer this morning is that we would not just experience your indwelling presence, but that we from the inside out would be changed into the very one that we desire. So we give you full reign to change things up, to remove things, to rearrange the furniture in our lives and in our hearts, to do whatever you want to do with your church and with us as individuals, knowing that all that you plan is good, even the things that are uncomfortable. Have your way today in Jesus' name, amen. Until Christ is formed in you, That's the one phrase I just want to be drilled deep down into our our minds and hearts today. Just for a second, forget about everything else that I read and just remember that, that one phrase. Until Christ is formed in you. In other words, there's this sense that Paul is saying there needs to be this ongoing process in which Christ is revealing more of himself to you until he is formed in you. Now, that part of that might be a little confusing when you read it, especially after reading all that we did, because didn't he just say in verse four or in verse six, God has sent the spirit of his, sons in, uh, of his son into our heart, crying, Abba, Father? And some of us would say, well, Christ is already in my heart. Being a believer, being a Christian, Christ is already present in my heart. Why is Paul saying 10 or so verses later, I want Christ to be formed in your heart if he's already, in fact, there to begin with? And the clue to what Paul is saying lies in the middle of those two verses. Verse six, he's in your heart dwelling, and verse, uh, uh, verse 19, he's to be formed in your heart. Everything in the middle is the clue to what Paul is really getting at. See, the reason Paul wrote the letter, this letter to uh, the Galatian church, is because false teachers begin to infiltrate the church, speaking uh, uh, about this, uh, this old way of life, promoting themselves, and drawing the Galatian Christians away from the gospel of grace. Those Christians who were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ's work alone, were now going back to those elemental things. They were trying to go back to the works of the law and trying to exercise uh, their righteousness to find acceptance uh, with God. And Paul writes this letter to the Galatian church, which takes on a completely different tone from any other letter that he wrote. Even the letter to the uh, Corinthian church, those, you know, those uh, believers who were uh, sexually immoral and who were suing one another and doing all sorts of things that we shouldn't be doing, he, he addressed them as brothers. He addresses every church as brothers. No matter how badly they're doing, this is the only church that lacks that type of affection. And instead of the affectionate term of brother sister in Christ. Instead, he opens up immediately after a very short greeting, chapter one, verse six, I am so amazed how quickly you're turning away from the gospel. Later on in that chapter, he says that they're accursed. In chapter three, he calls them foolish. He says that they're hypnotized, bewitched. In chapter two, he actually goes up against the apostle Peter saying, hey, you're following, uh, you're following this legalistic, self-righteous, false gospel as well. He confronts him publicly to his face. In other words, I don't care if you're the apostle Peter. This is not the way of Christ. He's lambasting them, questioning even the core of their salvation. But then when he gets to chapter four, starts to take on a slightly softer, painful tone. See, Paul is grieved. He's grieved because he initially believed that this church, little church, Galatian church, was filled with people who were converted, and he believed that Jesus, in that moment, indwelt their hearts. And a fruit of the indwelling Spirit of God is a life that is changed by the very one who dwells within you. And Paul is looking at that and he's seeing a disconnect. And for that reason, he is in anguish, he is grieved because he should see 
Christ being formed in them. I am in labor pains. In other words, Paul is using just the most emphatic language possible. I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm in labor again. Some women might be, be like, what does Paul know about labor pains? <laughs> yeah, I know. He's Paul, the Apostle Paul, he's going for hyperbole. He's trying to get the, just the, the gnarliest language possible to describe the pain and suffering that this is causing him when the people of God are disconnected from the vine. He uses this word to describe uh, Christ being formed in us. Uh, uh, the original word being morpheo is where we get the word metamorphosis. In other words, it's this very deep, fundamental change. It's a forming on the inside, moving to the outside of a person. It's the same language that would have been used for the formation of an embryo or the formation of a baby in the womb. It's a long development of something over a period of time. Paul is saying this about the Christian. In other words, Jesus doesn't just dwell in a person and then leave them to their own vices. He dwells in a person and he begins to change and transform them from the inside out. We often term this growing in Christ. It's one of the phrase, uh, phrases that we throw around in the church to speak and explain that. Well, what is growing in Christ? It means Christ is being formed in our lives. In what part of our lives? Because I doubt anybody in a church would question or argue that Christ is somehow being formed in an area of our lives. And we perhaps, to our own detriment, compartmentalize that. Well, Christ, you can have this and you can have that, but, you know, this part of my life is mine. You know, the part that I don't really want you to mess with. You know, you can rearrange some of the furniture. You can have that old couch over there. You can have the papazon chair that no one sits on. But, you know, my TV, you know, like that furniture in my heart and in my life is mine. Don't touch. When Paul speaks about growing in Christ, he uses some pretty strong language. Uh, for example, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, he says this. That we are progressing, being trained, growing until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son. Growing into a mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. A few verses later in verse 15 he says, we are to grow in every way into him who is the head. We are to grow in every way in our lives measured by the fullness of who Christ is. Is. So growing in Christ means Christ is being formed in every single area of our life. There's nothing that remains untouched. There's nothing that remains unturned. Every part of your life, from beginning to end, from the depth to the shallow part, is, left, uh, is, is given over to God. Now what do you suppose that would look like? In what way did Jesus form his own disciples? Well, let's think about that for a second. And we might have the tendency to look through the Gospels and look for uh, stories that uh, uh, grab our attention or that we resonate with on a, on a good level. You know, we see the disciples and we see them uh, learning how to pray. We'd say, oh, being a Christian is all about prayer. We should be people of prayer. That's true. But someone else might say, well, I really like to worship. I see that the disciples were worshipers. We should be uh, all, all in to Christ in our affections. That's also true. Others would say, well, we, uh, we've got to learn about who Christ is. We've got to uh, know him by knowledge. Well, that's true as well. But that's not all of it. Christ wants to take over every part of your life. So let's just start from the very beginning. How did Christ form his own disciples? Well, we'd have to say that they learned from him, right? We'd have to say on a fundamental, wow, that is the thickest marker I've ever. <laughs> Learning, I don't even, I can't even see the font right now. It's so big. We'd have to say on a fundamental level that the disciples at least learned from Jesus, right? You're reading about that in the Gospel of Matthew. He preached, he spoke, he taught, he gave parables, he explained stuff, he explained his miracles, he was always talking to them, he was always uh, explaining things to them, he was always enlightening them to, to certain things about the kingdom, right? He was, pre he was a good rabbi, he was a Messiah, 
is what he was. So on a very basic level, the disciples were learning on an intellectual mind level. Their minds were being renewed. But it wasn't just their minds that were being renewed, right? There was at some point, at a certain time, a place where what Jesus taught his disciples moved beyond their intellect into their heart. You see this in places like in Luke, on the Emmaus Road, where the disciples are learning from Jesus. He's telling them everything that the Bible is teaching, and it's in their minds. But there comes a point on the Emmaus Road where it says that the, it teaches that the Holy Spirit somehow enlightened their hearts, and they, they uh, I'm, I'm quoting them, but they say, My heart, our hearts were ablaze as he was speaking to us from the scriptures. In other words, what Jesus teaches us goes from our minds to our hearts so that we can practice that which we believe. That's what uh, the Apostle James said. It doesn't matter if you hear the word of God. What matters is if you practice what you hear. There needs to be a sense of practicing what we hear, where it moves, practicing, practicing. Well, there's no way I can erase that. I mean, look at this. So just use your imagination. There comes a point in time where the word of God moves from our mind deep into our heart. You might experience this on a very practical level, right, where you're reading the Bible, you're filling your mind with the knowledge of God. But it's just, a, you know, it's just in your mind, which is what you're supposed to do. Paul said, renew your mind. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But you ever have those moments where you're just sitting there, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit opens your eyes in this deep way, and you're like, bam! And it just becomes so real to you and convicting. Maybe you take it to prayer. Maybe you write it down. But whatever you're doing, at that moment you've learned something. Now you're putting it into practice. Or maybe you hear something uh, in a sermon or uh, by someone else or in prayer and during the second set of worship, what happens? You wanna sit in that place and let the Holy Spirit work on your heart. What you have learned is now being put into practice. We see that in the disciples. Mind, heart. Now we also see Jesus very obsessed with community. The disciples weren't just learning in their minds and in their hearts, but they were sharing with one another. Let me just concentrate real quick. So I sharing. We see the disciples sharing, and not just once a week, right, for lunch on Sundays, but they were always with each other. They were going from house to house. They were eating their meals together. They were carrying each other's burdens. They were ministering together. They had all things in common, Acts chapter four tells us. Sharing, where that which we learn from Christ renews our minds, changes our hearts, our behavior, and we share that which we learn with one another. And then there comes a point, end of Matthew, go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations. End of uh, the Gospel of John, as the Father has sent me, Jesus says, so I am sending you, where we eventually have to invest in others or pour out. Now, we can at least say in answering that question, in what ways did Jesus form his disciples, that it is at least that. I'm sure you could add a few other things to that, but it's at least this, right? We are learning about Christ. It is changing our disposition and our will and our affections, and our, it's transforming us. We're sharing it in community with the body of Christ, and we're investing, pouring out in mission uh, for the kingdom in our community as a church. It's at least that, pouring in, sharing with one another, pouring out. When we see this in the life of the disciples, and we see it in some measure with ourselves, we have uh, learned to uh, phrase this, at least in this local church, in an easy way to understand as being theological, right? Mind and heart, being relational, sharing with one another, and investing, being on mission. Theological, missional, relational. We believe 
that these are not just things that we want to throw around, we just want to be busy and be about doing stuff, but that we believe at the very core that to be theological, to be on mission, to share in community with one another is to be Uh, participating in what it means to grow in Christ. That this is what it looks like, at least on a fundamental level, to be formed in the image of Christ. That our minds and hearts are being transformed. That we are pouring out into the community for the kingdom of God and that we are sharing all things with one another. Theological, missional, and relational. Now why in the world do you think that would be so important? Because perhaps for some of you, on a personal level, personality-wise, you're geared maybe towards one thing. Maybe you're intellectual, you like to think deeply, but you don't really like people so much, so you stay away from them. Or maybe you're socialite, you love people, you just don't wanna think deeply about too much. The problem with this is, okay, I apologize for this in advance, but I saw this meme on Facebook last week of this bodybuilder and it was a shot from behind, uh, from behind him as he was in the gym pumping weights and the top half of him was just completely yoked. Like shoulders the size of bowling balls, just yoked, just holding up these weights. And from the waist down, he just had like these chicken legs, right? <laughs> I don't even remember what the meme was, but you could like cover one half and, and see a completely different person. Chicken legs, like nothing here, but just up here, just deranged and deformed, like just just pumped on steroids, that's what he looked like. And this is like classic like <laughs> Southern California bodybuilder, right? I just wanna work out my upper torso because I'm gonna you know, wear pants the rest of the year or whatever, I don't even know what the motivation is. Look at me, I'm just nothing. But anyhow, <laughs> it's a deformed body and it doesn't really look good. But on a spiritual level, it's much more detrimental than that. Because just start thinking about this for a moment, okay? It's, Let's just uh, use our imagination. Let's just say you, for a moment, you're that type of person who loves reading the Bible, theology. You love growing in your knowledge of God. You love, uh, uh, you love going to Bible studies and calm groups of that fashion. You love digging deep. You love expanding your knowledge of God. It's changing you. It's changing your heart and your mind. But you don't really have... Uh, You're not really invested into the kingdom of God. You're not really being spent well for the kingdom of God. You're just being poured into. You know what that's like? You know what's gonna happen? You're gonna be deformed in your growth because Christ wants every area of your life. That's growing in Christ. Think of it this way. A few years back, I had the opportunity to go to Israel and I I remember one particular day I took a visit to the Dead Sea. Dead Sea is the lowest point on the face of the earth, right? And because it is, every other stream, every other lake, every other body of water makes its way eventually down to the Dead Sea. And so there's a good part of that. It's being poured into. And because it's being poured into, all of the sediment, all of the dirt, all of the minerals, all of the uh, other good stuff in the, in the region makes its way down to that point. And because of that, and you go there, you see all of these tourists just uh, from all over the world, just like, oh, it's got these healthy properties, and they're making a killing off it. You could buy a bottle of Dead Sea water and smear it all over your face, and it'll make you look, you know, 50 years younger, and, you know, it'll make you look amazing and smarter and all of this stuff. And there's people in this lake that are just smearing and just splashing, and they're just, they have this look of, like, spirituality on their face. They're just splashing themselves And people love that, and there's a good part of that. But there's no channel of water out. There's no outlet. And this poses a problem. You know why? You know why they call it the Dead Sea? It's not because it sits there stagnant. It's because nothing can live there. There's no fish. There's no plant life. There's no foliage. There's no anything. There's only tourists splashing their face with salt water. Because the salt is so high in its content that it cannot sustain life. You know what happens when you continue to pour into your, your life without any sense of mission or outlet or investment? You begin to turn inward on yourself. I've seen this over and over. I've experienced it in my own life. 
generally with young people between the ages of 20 and 35, who in their zeal pour into themselves. They learn, they take on all of this knowledge. They learn and they grow in their knowledge of God and theological things, but there's no outlet for what God is pouring into them. You know what happens? They grow in on themselves. They often grow bitter because no one else is understanding, no one else is catching up with what they're learning and what they're doing. From that bitterness, they they go into a a place of pride. Why? Because they're not pouring out what God has poured into them. Well, what about people who are on mission? People who have a sense of of mission, they love pouring into their community, but they're not uh, grounded in relationships. Well, I've seen with some uh, uh, people like that who are invested in the community, invested in the kingdom of God and the church and others' lives, but are not plugged into well-meaning relationships, that they sometimes get burnt out. Why? Because they're pouring out a lot, nobody's pouring back into them. Well, what about a person who is really relational? I mean, you are a socialite. Like, you, you're an anomaly to me, for example. You just love, like, just parties and social activity. You have, you know, a hundred uh, good relationships. But, uh, and let's say you're even on mission, involved in a lot of stuff, but you're, you don't really learn anything about God. You might be in danger of making your relationships an idol. You're not growing in the knowledge of God, so God doesn't have that place. The gospel isn't uh, tearing down idols in your life, so what do you do? You do the next best thing. You make your your close friends and your uh, good projects the ultimate thing in your life. Well, what's gonna happen when your friends betray you or let you down? You're gonna be devastated because your identity was not in Jesus Christ. What happens when uh, what you're doing falls apart or you, you get criticized? You're gonna be devastated. Christ doesn't just compartmentalize the lives of his people. He takes it over. And a healthy Christian life involves everything. Mind, heart, body, soul, relationship, ambitions, desires, family. Everything you can name. Now what do you think this might look like? I'm just gonna, let's just start here. At the point of salvation, Before we knew God, we were far from God, steeped in our own sin, and sad face. The Bible says, right, that the way this changes, when you become a Christian, it's not because, primarily because of a prayer, it's not primarily because you signed the back of a bulletin, it's not because of church attendance or any of those things, it's because Christ made his home in your heart. That's what makes a Christian. Paul says in Romans chapter eight, uh, I think it's, Uh, Chapter 8, verse 10 and 11. Paul says, Now if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who has raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, uh, he will dwell in your mortal body, uh, excuse me, then he who raised Christ from the dead will bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. That's what happens at the point of conversion. Christ is in in you. Now, the point of this is that when Christ returns, we learn this during Christmas, right, at Advent, there will come a point where Christ will come back, we will see him as he is, and we will be perfected. First John, uh, or excuse me, yeah, First John chapter three, verse two. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. So Christ indwells us at the point of conversion, but then when Christ comes back, there will be a complete, perfect, glorious change where Jesus himself will change us body, mind, and soul. He won't just dwell in us, he will perfect us. Can't even see this from where you are, but I'm running out of room. Christ who indwells you will perfect you personally. That leaves us this question. What do we do here? What are we supposed to do in the interim period? which is right now 
as you're sitting and I'm standing and we're sharing our lives together. Let me put it in the words of the Apostle Paul. Not that I have already reached the goal or am already fully mature. I have not gotten there yet. But I make every effort to take hold of it. I make every effort to take hold of it because I have already been taken hold of by Jesus Christ. Brothers, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and pressing on, reaching forward to what is ahead. I pursue, you hear this language Paul is using, I pursue as my goal, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, all who are mature should think this way. What is the Christian in the interim period supposed to be concerned and obsessed with? Pursuing as their goal and as their call, the upward call of Christ. Our obsession is to be made and conformed and transformed into the image of God's Son. Everything that we do, not just the spiritual things, not just showing up at church, not just cracking open your Bible, the the life and the air that you breathe, Your mind, your worldview, your ambitions, your desires, an obsession and a consuming passion. I want to be formed into the image of Christ as I speak. This is our responsibility and it's also our great joy to be growing in Christ. How do we experience that? We experience it by letting Jesus have full reign over everything. Easy way to think of that is theological, our minds and our hearts, studying and learning about who God is. It's relationships, sharing our lives with the body of Christ. And it's mission, it's pouring out that which he has poured in. One writer on uh, this particular passage writes, Paul is facing that birth process all over again. He's undergoing anguish once more like that when he first preached to them, and that pain, he says, will last until Christ be formed in you. This is an interesting way of referring to being truly Christian. The believer is not only one who professes faith, but one who is transformed into the likeness of Christ. Indeed, Christ indwells the believer, and this means a complete change. <laughs> Paul is not looking for a few minor alterations in the Galatians, but for such a transformation that to see them would be to see Christ. That's where you're headed. That's God's plan for your life is that you would be changed on such a fundamental level that the world, Santa Barbara, would look and see you and they would see a picture of Jesus Christ as he is consuming and taking over every part of who you are. Now that might sound really bizarre to you, right? It kind of does, actually, to be consumed by another person. Because we place a lot of virtue and a lot of value in our autonomy. We place a lot of value in you know, being yourself. We tell each other that all the time. Be yourself. Don't try to be someone you're not, <laughs> right? Be authentic, all of those things. And now Paul is telling us, no, <laughs> be somebody else. Be like Christ. Grow in Christ. Uh, imitate Christ, all of these things. That might sound very bizarre to you, especially the, this very real uh, being, uh, consummation of becoming unified with someone else. But is it really that bizarre? We actually accept things like this, maybe without even realizing it. For example, in popular culture. You ever heard of uh, method acting? It's a controversial style of acting in which The actors will not just mimic the character that they're portraying on screen, but they will invest every aspect of their being 
on and off stage into that character. It's included actors who've taken their part so seriously that sometimes the line between the stage and real life is blurred as they become the character that they're desiring to portray. Some of the great actors in the past few years have taken this on. Daniel Day-Lewis, right? Nicolas Cage, Heath Ledger. Daniel Day-Lewis, it was said of him that as he was preparing and uh, acting for the movie, Abraham Lincoln was so caught up in his role that he began signing checks and other papers with an A. They were so taken with the character that they started to become the character that they were mimicking. And what do we do? Well, we applaud actors like that. We applaud them because when they're on screen and we watch them, they're bringing a character to life. And yet we simultaneously, don't we? We pity them. We feel sorry for them when that character spins them out of control off stage. I love what you're doing on stage because it's making that character come alive, but you are losing control over your life off stage, and so I pity you. The Bible tells us that it's not one or two Hollywood actors out there, but all of us who, you know, while we have some good characteristics in our life, are the ones who are spinning out of control. You may say, I'm, I have, how dare you compare me to that? How dare you say that I'm out of control? Have you seen my life? got good money, I've got a good job, I've got a good family, I've got good relationships. I go to church like every week, I don't know if you've noticed. <laughs> Somebody should turn the lights on. How dare you say I'm out of control? Okay, just bear with me. You ever had like those moments where you've been like, I, I can't believe I said that. Just little, little things. I can't believe I just did that. I can't believe I'm capable of that. Guys, I, I'm a Christian, and it, I just did that this week. Done things, said things, thought things that I was ashamed of because that's not me. On a very small level, surely we can resonate with that. The Bible's desire is to see, is to show you on a great level that that's more true than you can imagine. And the Bible's way of phrasing it is the sinful nature. That thing that is not you, the Bible calls a sinful nature, or sometimes it uses this metaphor, the old, the old man or the old nature. Now, of course, we don't want our identity swallowed up. And that's not what the Bible is saying. That when you start following Jesus, he swallows up your personality and who you are, and you're not gonna be, you know, you're not gonna be uh, your own identity and your own person. That's not what we're talking about. But don't, can't, we, can't we say together, at least in this room, that on a very basic level, we desire truly a life really lived? Don't all of us in this room wanna get to the end of our lives and look back and say, I lived. And isn't that why we watch movies of people living, bad people living and good people living? It doesn't matter to us. We just want to feel the intensity of a life spent well. problem for us is it's not just personality traits getting in the way, is it? It's something far deeper. And this is what Paul explains in Romans chapter 7 in something that is eerily reminiscent of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He says, I don't understand what I'm doing. Because I, I, I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me. That is my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. Thanks be to God for our Lord Jesus Christ, who comes in by the power of the gospel, not only to remove the old nature, but to give you the power to live as you truly desire to live. And that is what happens when we are indwelt by the Spirit of God, is it not? 
We're not just praying a sinner's prayer. We're not just walking down an aisle. We're not just mentally ascending to a series of doctrines. We're not just joining a membership role. We are at a very fundamental level being changed. Do you understand when Christ comes into your heart, into your life, he comes in as the new owner of your life. He comes in to evict the old nature. He gives the old nature an eviction notice and he says you're gone and you're dead and I am going to rearrange the furniture and I am going to live here and make this my house. That is a deep change in your life. That's more than just coming to church on Sunday, is it not? That is the deepest, most fundamental change. You are given a new nature for crying out loud. That is something to be excited about. Paul says in Ephesians chapter two, God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us made us alive with the Messiah even though we were dead in our trespasses. We were here, he brought us here. We were not breathing, he infused breath into our life and that's where that metamorphosis comes from. Christ dwells in your heart, but he, you know, we often have that very true statement, come as you are. But Christ's love is so tenacious for you, he'll never leave you the way he found you. He loves you too much. Christ begins to conform those he dwells, uh, those he indwells, as every aspect of our lives turn in its allegiance towards him. What many of us desire I'm willing to bet, it's what I desire, is a life truly lived. You know, when Christ saves a person, he doesn't swallow up your identity. He doesn't erase your personality. He doesn't make you a cookie cutter. Isn't that, isn't that good to hear? He doesn't conform you to everybody else that you're sitting next to. You understand that Genesis tells us, as you read in the past few weeks, that you were made in the image of God, meaning to be fully human is to reflect the glory of God. You know what sin does? We see this in Genesis chapter three. It mars that image. It doesn't erase it, but it distorts it. It's like looking at your beautiful and lovely spouse in a fun house of mirrors. You still see them, but they are grossly distorted. That's what sin does. So when Christ removes sin from our lives, he's not just telling us to uh, change our behaviors for its own sake. He's removing that, that, that mess in our lives to make us more fully human. And when he indwells us, he's carrying that out. You see, Hebrews tells us that he is the exact image of God, the radiance of the Father's glory. And the exact image of God then indwells broken images to restore them to what they were meant to be. We could say this, that when you're born again, Christ begins to restore you to be who you really are supposed to be. It's in union with Christ that we are truly human. I'll end with this. At this point, you may be asking yourself either one of two things, you know, two sides of the fence. One, it's, it's too easy or it's too hard. Perhaps some of you are looking at this and you say, well, okay, well, if Christ is gonna do everything and if Christ is gonna complete everything, and he's even working in me to get to that place, and it's all his work by grace and through faith, then why should I do anything? I might as well just enjoy my life apart from Jesus because he's gonna finish his job. In fact, isn't that what Galatians is about anyway? Like, don't look to the law for your salvation? Do you see Paul's motivation is that we're to pursue the goal we're to take hold of it because Christ has taken hold of us. His entire premise in Galatians is it doesn't even make sense that Christ would take hold of you, including your affections, if it doesn't affect you at all. Sometimes we think of three different spheres, kingdom of darkness, 
and then the kingdom of light, and then God saves us, and we're kind of in the middle, this neutral gray area to figure out what we want, you know? I, I used to struggle with this when I was 20 years old, in the college years, right? Okay, yeah, I know, like, I was taught, you know, at the college group or by my parents about Jesus, but, you know, I'll have the rest of my life to figure that stuff out, but I'm 20, I'm just gonna enjoy my life. I'm in the gray area. The Bible knows no such thing. You're in the kingdom of darkness or you're in the kingdom of light. And if you are in the kingdom of light, there is going to be a fundamental change in your life. Paul said in Romans 6, are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Jesus were baptized into his death? You're dead. Your old life is no more. We were buried with him in baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in a new way of life. Perhaps some of you would say, well, something is missing in my life. Well, think about it on a very simple level. Are you renewing your mind and your heart with the things of God? Are you getting into his word? Are you plugged into meaningful relationships? Are you being spent and spent well for the kingdom of God? Are you engaging and participating in what Christ has thrown into your lap? Some of you are on the opposite end. That might be apathy, but some of you are on the opposite end of the fence. You're experiencing despair because to tell you the truth, you look at this and you're like, I see right here another list. I'm a single parent. I've got 20 kids. I'm balancing three jobs. I can barely pay the bills. I'm struggling. I feel spiritually high when I show up to Sunday uh, with not forgetting my Bible. I can't even think about this stuff. This is a weight to you, maybe, and you're despairing. Brothers and sisters in Christ, can I just for a moment remove that burden from your shoulders? In that everything that God says, everything that he says about being conformed in his image is for your comfort. I just wanna close by reading one more passage in Philippians chapter two, verse 12 through 13, and perhaps one of the most bizarre commands I have ever heard Paul say. He said, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Not like a scary fear, like I'm afraid God's gonna hit me or something, but a holy reverence, like, whoa. Look at this. For it is God who is working in you. Enabling you both to desire and to work out his good purpose. Think of the bizarre nature of this command. You work because God is working in you to work. Do you understand that God wants you to be conformed into his image more than you do? God isn't waiting on high. You remember that statement back in the 90s or whatever it was, uh, what would Jesus do, WWJD? I used to wear the bracelet. That was my... That was my stomping grounds. <laughs> I think I even had a shirt. And for some people, it worked really well. Like, okay, yeah, what would Jesus do? All right, sweet. But for other people, it was a, a huge weight. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? Why was it a huge weight? Well, what would Jesus do? Everything perfectly. I remember throwing my bracelets in the trash because it just reminded me that I don't do what Jesus would do. I fail miserably every single day. That's not a very good motivation. You know what is a good motivation? Not what would Jesus do as he's sitting on a throne looking down at you with a stick waiting to beat you when you mess up, but that Jesus is inside you, working inside you to conform to his image with great delight and great pleasure. Do you understand? God delights. He gets giddy about making you more like himself. Do not be discouraged, brothers and sisters. Everything in your life is affected by union with Christ. Your right standing with God, your justification, your prayer life, your nourishment, your sanctification as we looked at, your relationships, the gospel, every single benefit of your salvation comes from being connected to the vine. Are you connected to Jesus Christ today? 
spiritual warfare. Next Sunday, we are going to open up the can that is Ephesians chapter six, verse 10 through everything else. Or I hope that the Holy Spirit will open our eyes to the spiritual realm. And if you are not in Christ, you may be terrified by what you see. If you are in Christ, you will leave this building confident. Why? Because you pray real good? Because you got the armor of of Christ? Because you go to reality? (laughs) No. In the words of the Apostle John, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Don't you see? All of heaven's resources are pointed at you to make you who God designed you to be until the end of days when heaven itself will come crashing down in your lap. And in the interim period that is our lives, demons are trembling, angels are rejoicing, and the lost are waiting for you to recognize who you are in Christ. Do you know? I'm gonna pray that we do. Heavenly Father, ask today that as we sing songs about you, confessing your holy name, immersing ourselves in your presence, that you would radically change us on a fundamental level. God, we're tired of playing church, showing up on Sunday and just uh, going through the motions. We on a deep level are very thirsty to know that our lives are gonna live, are gonna be well lived. So God, I pray that you would convict us by the Spirit, that you would give us a sense of repentance, that we would fall at your feet, repent of our self-righteous tendencies and works, and fall down in desperation for knowing you more. Pray that you would cause our eyes to be fixed on things above where Christ is and where we are seated and not on earth. And in that, I pray that we would be changed from the inside out and never be the same. Have your way, in Jesus' name, amen.